0: Well, I don't think anyone likes to be yelled at. Yet, it seems like we all do it or have done it at some point in our lives. We might yell if we're angry, frustrated, tired. Maybe we feel threatened. Maybe we feel like we're losing control of a situation and the only way to regain control is to yell. And I think that parents with young children can be especially vulnerable to this. If there was such a thing as a yell meter, and you were to look at my yell meter, I suspect mine would be at a much higher frequency when my kids were younger. And a lot of that was my own parenting journey. When little people come into your life, they don't come with an instruction manual. Nor do they come with a remote by which you can control them. They come with their own personalities and their own experiences. And the parent comes with their life experience before parenting and slowly but surely you begin to realize these little ones have come into your life to totally invade it. There is no untouched part and you now have to figure out how do I figure out and live this life in light of this little person being part of my life from now on. And sometimes we may yell because they don't listen or they aren't careful or they're too loud or they might break something. And if we're too late in our warnings, then we have more opportunities to yell at the broken lamp, at the moaning younger sibling laying in the corner, or the mess. Now, a lot of times, yelling is not the best response. Sometimes we can be mean when we yell. Sometimes we yell just because we're inconvenienced, and that's not a good enough reason. We may yell because we learned it from our family, and that's what you did when you were under stress. So a lot of the time, yelling is not helpful or the best response. But can you think of a time or times in life when yelling or shouting might be appropriate? In one article I looked at regarding yelling, they identified two situations where yelling was okay. Number one is when safety is threatened. So imagine you have a child who is riding their bike and they are barely towards the road with no indication that they are slowing down or checking things out as to what's on the road. So you yell, stop. And most people in the world would say, Well, that's that's okay, that's appropriate. You're trying to trying to save the child, trying to protect them. Or if you're on a work site and a crane load slips from its rigging, it's appropriate to yell, watch out to the people who are below or anyone who might be in danger. And the second instance of appropriate yelling is when help is needed immediately. So say you're in a shopping mall with grandma and grandma asks to sit down on one of the benches and then she begins to pass out. Well then it would be appropriate to yell help Or say a store clerk notices that there's a person that's really checking out something on the shelf and is looking a little suspicious. And all of a sudden they see that person grab something and run out of the store. Well then it's appropriate to yell stop or help. So when safety is threatened or someone needs help now, it's okay to shout or yell. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I need to prepare you to be yelled at. But I'm not going to yell at you. James is. James will, in his letter, and his yelling or shouting is coming from a place of love. And he does this because he cares for the safety of those he writes to, including you and me. So today, we're simply looking at answering two questions. First of all, what is James yelling about? Or why is he yelling? And then how might we respond to what he is yelling about? And remember this comes from a place of earnest concern and care. And I pray that God is gonna use these words today, that he inspired James to write, to speak to our hearts with what he wants us to hear. So if you have a Bible, please find James chapter four. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, it's on page 856 in the Bibles that we have in in front of you there, and it's on the bottom right column of page 856 by the number 4 is where I'll start to read, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses of James 4. And he writes this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So James starts by asking a question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So Christians were quarreling and fighting. And it was so bad and so widespread that word got back to James about this. And remember, he's writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, all over the world. So he decides to address this issue in this letter. But instead of simply commanding them to stop, James decides to get to the root of the matter. And you know how when you're looking at your yard and you want to get rid of a dandelion, you can't just pull out the top. You've got to get into the root or pull it out by the root if you really want to get rid of it and that's what James wants to do here. He sees these quarrels and fights as an indication of something much deeper so he identifies the source of their quarrel and fights at the end of verse 1 where he says, is it not this that your passions or evil desires are at war within you? So James connects their quarreling and fighting to their own selfish or evil desires. And then he gives examples of these in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, that's pretty extreme. If it's literal murder. And some think that's exactly what he's talking about here. There was a Jewish group called the Zealots who believed that the only way to solve the problem of Roman occupation was to kill Romans. And they might have brought that solution into their relationships in the church. Or James could mean murder figuratively, like spiritual murder, and Jesus did say that anyone who has anger or angry bitterness in their heart towards another, it's like they are murdering them in their hearts. But the desire for something that they did not get resulted in murder, literal or spiritual. And then he goes on and says, you covet, well, there's another evil desire, And you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the evil desire leads to quarreling. And then the evil desires lead to problems with their prayer life. For he says at the end of verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. But then when they do ask in verse three, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So evil desires often prevented them from praying, But when they did ask in prayer, God wouldn't grant their request because they only asked to satisfy their evil desires. And then we come to verse 4, and here is where the yelling starts. So, verse 4 you adulterous people, or literally, you adulteresses. But he's not just addressing the females. He means everyone who's quarreling and fighting. Well, that's quite jarring, isn't it? You don't get very far with a crowd by calling them adulteresses. And it seems like it's out of the blue because he doesn't even mention this in the previous verses. But to a Jewish reader who knew the Hebrew Scriptures, they might immediately get the connection. Because James is not the first one to call the Israelites adulterers or an adulterous people. God did that through his prophets when Israel went after other gods. And the covenant between God and his people was like a marriage where God was the groom and his people were the bride. So when they went after other gods, it was like they were an unfaithful bride. In calling his readers adulteresses, James brings to their minds spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And then he explains the, sp- the specifics of their spiritual adultery in the rest of verse four. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God and so this is the answer to our first question what is James yelling about he warns against the deadly condition of friendship with the world he claims that anyone who becomes friends with the world becomes an enemy of God and to be an enemy of God is a soul-threatening situation But I think we might struggle a bit to understand the seriousness of this because we might wonder, what's the the big deal of being friends with the world and friends with God? And friendships come and go, and some are more serious than others. So why does James yell about this? And it all depends on the meaning of the word world. So James is not talking about planet Earth when he mentions the word world. Nor is he talking about the population of the earth. Here James uses world to refer to the system and values of a society apart from God. Dallas Willard defined the word as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan. John Mark Comer defines the world as a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture which is corrupted by the twin sins of rebelling against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So the world is the system, practices, and standards associated with secular society, And a secular society is one that attempts to live as if there is no God. And this contrasts with the Christian worldview that believes that God tells us the truth about reality through his word. Whereas the world tries to shape reality with its own redefinition of truth. Now, these definitions hopefully help us to see why James yells. A system that is anti-God and redefines good and evil according to its own preferences is something completely foreign to a Christ follower, or at least it should be. You can't claim to be a Christian while living in agreement with the values of Satan's system. And when we think further about friendship in the first century, it further explains why James yells. To us, a friend might be just an acquaintance on social media or someone who maybe drops in to watch a movie and you have the occasional or the few life-devoted friends who are willing to sacrifice for you. But friendship is all across the spectrum, whereas in the first century, friendship was a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. And that's the kind of friendship James is talking about here. Anyone who is friends with the world is joining with its values and its priorities. And since the world aims to live as if there is no God, friendship with the world means to adopt this value. Well, how can a follower of God live as if there's no God? And maybe you know people like this who used to walk with God and now they don't. And I suspect that many who have taken this path did not do so consciously, at least initially. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know, last night I was a follower of God. Today I'm going to leave all that behind and become a child of the world. No, it was just like one little thing. And it led to another and to another. And the gap between walking with God becomes larger and larger. New Testament prof Doug Moo writes, certainly James readers were not openly disclaiming God and consciously deciding to follow the world instead. But their jealousy and selfish ambition and unrestrained passion showed they were living like they were of the world. So James yells, you adulteresses. It's like he's saying, wake up. Look at what's showing up in your lives. Don't you know that these are the attitudes and behaviors of people who live according to the world system and values? And James has given many other examples of friendship with the world in the previous verses we've gone through, like being double-minded or having a dual allegiance, one to God, one to the world. It looks like hearing God's word but not doing it in James 1.22. A friend of the world shows no concern for the vulnerable and oppressed in society. They show favoritism based on external appearance. They don't tame their tongues. They see a person in need and don't do anything to help them but just speak religious sentiment. And people who are friends with the world will agree with the redefinition of good and evil. And John Mark Comer lists a whole bunch of these in his book. I'm just going to highlight a few. A friend of the world agrees with the redefinition of love as lust. And marriage is redefined not as a covenant of lifelong faithfulness, but a contract for personal fulfillment. And greed is redefined as being responsible to shareholders. And gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world is redefined as globalism. And environmental degradation is redefined as progress. And Marxism is redefined as justice. And abortion is redefined as reproductive justice. And a TV show or movie that has coarse language, inappropriate scenes, and graphic violence is redefined as normal, even good. And for a Christian to befriend the world, Man, you would have to unfriend God. But it's much more than a simple adjustment on a social media platform. It's a wholesale movement away from God to friendship with the world. And you not only leave behind God as a friend, you become his enemy, according to James. He makes it clear there's no sitting on the fence. It's either one or the other. But we must keep balanced with this. For some Christians take this and say, okay, okay. Well, if we can't be friends with the world, we must completely separate from the world. But that's not how Jesus taught his disciples. He commanded them to be salt and light. So we are required to separate from the sinful practices of the world, but we need to be in the world and shine Christ's hope and life to the people of the world. So James yells to get our attention and take this seriously. He yells to wake us up to the danger of friendship with the world. How do we respond? Or could we? And it's simply this. To deal with the deadly condition of friendship with the world, we must continually come close to God or draw near to God, as this text says. And in the rest of this passage, James shows us how to respond. And he actually gives about eight commands or so. Uh, One, submit yourselves therefore to God. Two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Four, cleanse your hands. Five, purify your hearts. Six, be wretched, mourn and weep. Seven, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Eight, humble yourselves before the Lord. But I think draw near to God or come close to God encompasses all of these. And it means more than mental or emotional activity, it means I'm going to come close to you, God, and I'm going to live out your word. So I'm going to take seriously your word, and I'm going to respond to that person in need with more than religious phrases. And I'm going to work on taming my tongue by your spirit's help and I'm going to work on growing in wisdom by the spirit's transformation of my mind and, and, and notice the promise attached to draw near to God he will draw near to you and, there, and there's all kinds of help from God that's found in this passage, like in verse 5, where it says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. And that's the good kind of jealousy that we were talking about last week, the jealousy for another. And God is jealous for us. To remain as his children, to be close to him, not to become children of the world. So he's going to work towards that. And also notice the help in grace in, in verse 6. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or look at the, his help in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you or lift you up. So there's all kinds of help from God for us to be friends with him in the way that James commands here. So how do we draw near? I just want to touch on some of these briefly. Submit yourselves therefore to God is one, which means we actually have to see the Lord as our Lord, that we have someone who is over us, and the world tells you that you are the Lord of your life. And when we believe that, we try to live that way, yet we're actually enslaved under sin, under the realm of the devil. So when we submit to the Lord as our Lord, we submit to one who wants the best for us and died for us. We also come close to God by resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. So that means we need to acknowledge the devil as real and that he's opposing us, and that he's working against us, yet we can resist him. And when we resist, that automatically drives us to God, because we realize the devil is more powerful than us, but God is infinitely more powerful than the devil. And so we are closer to God, and he enables us to resist the devil. And then James uses priestly language in verse 8, To give us another way to draw near to God, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So that's kind of more yelling. But it brings the Jewish reader back to a worshiper approaching the temple or tabernacle. And before they entered close, they had to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. They had to go through a sacrifice and participate in cleansing rituals as they prepared to meet with God. Which means that you and I, when we come before God, we have to watch out and be be, be careful about treating him casually as if, oh yeah, he's my buddy, I can come to him as ever I want to and all that, and he is our friend and he has purchased the way for us to to come, but we have to come humbly and and prayerfully and with repentance. And then verse 9, more yelling, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Isn't that an encouraging verse? And if you are talking to someone about coming to Christ, please don't direct them to James 4.9 as the first verse they read in the Bible. Um, it seems like James is the ultimate killjoy here, but he's not against laughter and joy. He's against trivial laughter, and joking about sin and friendship with the world. You might have heard people say, you know, oh, I might not be going to heaven, but when I get to hell, I'm going to see all my friends, and we're going to have a great old time. Ever heard that one? And James is saying it's not okay to minimize friendship with the world. And just laugh it off. If you want to get close to God and you've been a friend with the world for a long time, it's going to take some serious repentance and sorrow over the pain that has been caused and a turning to God. Yet God sees the earnest heart and he honors this. Whoever humbles themselves, he will exalt. Now, I know this is... Not a feel good message or passage initially. James yells at us, yet he does it to awaken us to the dire danger of casually becoming friends with the world. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians, at least Christians who won't agree with the world's mad dash towards a society without God. I think we used to live in a culture that tolerated Christians and maybe tried to undermine us and recruit us through seduction and temptation and those strategies are still in play and the devil will still use that strategy against us if that works. But now the world has added the tactics of intimidation shaming and silencing so there's no room for a respectful dialogue and disagreement you either agree or shut up and it seems like we're going to have to endure some yelling and shouting from people of the world if we don't go along with the world's values yet we must not respond to these worldly tactics with worldly tactics We don't intimidate, we don't shame people, we don't silence others, we don't yell back. We start by loving one another in this community and hopefully we show an alternative community to the way of the world. And then we respectfully state our convictions and calmly resist intimidation and silencing tactics. And hopefully a calm response Generates an opportunity to share. And we must also love those who are living by the way of the world. An angry Christian does not gain a hearing with someone who thinks the world's ways are right, but a loving Christian who remains true to their convictions yet cares for the person they disagree with can get somewhere. And it starts by drawing near to God In our personal lives and walk, and from Him and His strength, we go forth into the world to love people while remaining separate from the world's practices and values. And for that, we need God's grace and power and help. And thankfully, He gives more grace, according to verse 6. And so, I want to leave you today with two very simple prayers that you might pray or incorporate into your life. The first one has to do with friendship with the world, just in our personal walk and lives. And it goes like this. So prayer number one, Lord, please empower me to leave worldly friendship and come closer to your friendship. So Lord, please empower me to leave worldly friendship and come closer to your friendship. And then the second prayer is about our interaction with others in the world and our witness in the world. And it goes like this, Lord, help me to be in the world with love while not being of the world in values. Lord, help me to be in the world with love but not be of the world in values. And Lord, as we come to you today, we need your help. For the world has really turned and changed and become more hostile towards Christians. And our natural reaction is to strike back, to fight, to quarrel, to hit them like they hit us. But that is not what you did, Lord. You calmly resisted the pressure by the Pharisees to conform to the way they things thought, sh- they, the way they thought things should be done. You calmly resisted the Romans and their appeal for you to just say you weren't a king. You, you persevered right to the end. You did it quietly. You did not open your mouth in the sense of loud protest or fighting. And through that, you saved and are saving millions. So help us, Lord, in our own personal lives. First of all, if there's anything in our lives where we have been become friends with the world and we are harboring that friendship and we are nursing it, help us to see that and say goodbye to it. And, and, and then, Lord, there, there's people all around us who are living according to the ways of the world and, and we can get angry We can get frustrated. We might want to shout, but help us to love while calmly resisting the pressure. Help us to gain a hearing and calmly explain the hope that we have in you. And help us to become more and more a community that reflects your values your love, and your glory. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us so that we could come near to God. Amen.